I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, Lizzie Daston, art historian, and myself, Justin Bua, painter, artist. Lizzie, bring us there. (laughs) I don't even know where, but bring us somewhere. But I'll take us there. Well, first of all, this episode is supported by CAA, and they are having their annual conference in... February of 2019. It's in Manhattan and it's from February 13th until February 16th. And I hope that you guys will check it out. There are going to be hundreds of really innovative historians and critical thinkers and conferences from a wide range of subjects. One of them is about public art and activism, and I'll be speaking on that panel. And that is going to be romantically on February 14th. And if you guys want to learn more about CAA, their website is collegeart.org. So thank you to CAA. Back to you to take us somewhere else. Yeah. So where I want to take us today is to the wonderful world of one of my favorite painters, Egon Schiele. And Egon Schiele was an Austrian painter. Uh, He was under the tutelage and a protege of one of my other favorite painters that eventually we'll do an episode on down the road, Gustav Klimt, who was the only man in the world who could wear a frock and still look like a, like a man. But <clears throat> Egon Schiele had a very short life. Uh, he lived only till 28, although when I talk about Schiele, I like to lie and say that he lived to 27. I knew you were going to say because, that. Because <laughs> it's a magic it's, year. <laughs> yeah, it's that magic... Well, Janis Joplin died at 27. Kurt Cobain died at 27. You know, uh, Jimi Hendrix died at 27. 27 has this mysticism (laughs) about it. And uh, subsequently, this romantic air of coolness. So he didn't die at 27, ladies and gentlemen. He died at 28. I'm just keeping the record straight. And he, he died, unfortunately, of the pandemic of the Spanish flu, which took about 5 to 10% of, of Europe, killed about 20 million people. So that was a, a brutal, brutal way to go. And uh, three days before his death, his wife died. So that was absolutely brutal. But Sheila was a wonderful, wonderful draftsman. I consider him actually one of the top draftsmen that's ever lived. And he drew in a very different way. He drew in a style or in a way that we as artists call observationally, where he wasn't a constructive artist like Norman Rockwell or Bridgman or the Renaissance artists were, you know, Michelangelo, Donatello, Leonardo. He was an observational draftsman. He really was able to draw uh, realistically, almost as if you could feel the pencil crawling like an ant across the flesh and the bone. Like when it was a bone, you felt the boneness of it. When it was a muscle, you felt the musculature. When it was fat, you could feel the fat. And historically, uh, not many artists drew in that way. And because he drew in that way, you had an incredible sense of acute realism, but also it has an emotional quality to it. He had a very emotional way of drawing. So that has always struck with me. And a personal note is that my teacher, Gregory Weir Keaton, 
W-E-I-R, Keaton, Q-U-I-T-O-N, is a one of the greatest draftsmen alive today. Little half Filipino, Asian dude with long, had long hair most of his life. This dude drew crazy, and he, he really loved Sheila. Like, he was a real observational guy. He is a real observational guy. And I think Gregory Weir Keaton, in the spirit of Sheila, was, is, is also one of the greatest draftsmen. Just a shout-out to Gregory. And also a shout-out to your friend, our friend Our now. friend, Anna. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for this topic suggestion. It's really great, and I think that it taps into both Justin's interests and also mine, yours being the draftsmanship and the process and the expressive nature of his line, and mine in that it's all about bodies and sexuality and androgyny. So that's my point of interest in Sheila. And I think it's also important to talk about this moment globally and historically because Sheila's working in the early years of the 20th century, and he's working in Vienna, as you noted. But there was a Europe-wide interest at this time in expressionism. And that was a derivation of impressionism, where instead of just painting outwardly what you see, you're also really trying to articulate what's happening in your interior space and painting from an emotional place rather than an optical, logical place. And Sheila is perhaps the master of the artist who grappled with these tropes. And contemporaries of his, certainly Gustav Klimt, Oskar Kokoschka, and Klimt was, I think, the the most important artist to mention alongside Sheila because the two of them do engage with these themes of sexuality and sometimes sexually transmitted diseases, and we have that in both of their oeuvres, but where Sheila separates himself is in his lack of decoration. Klimt is known for his gilding, his patterning, and that was certainly common amongst artists at the time. And Sheila whittles down his compositions to just the figures. He eliminates any kind of decorative screen and funnels all of our attention on the agitation of his bodies. And so I think that even launches him to a further place of expression because we don't have anything to distract our eye. And why he was interested in figures and this intersection between sexuality and suffering is really interesting. So he died of influenza, as you noted, but his father died when Sheila was very young of syphilis. His father, by the way, uh, side note, his name was Adolf, which nobody in this day and age is ever named Adolf anymore. I mean, after Adolf Hitler, I mean, this was a time when people were named Adolf. So just... Think of that. And his father was also a brutal man. His father uh, picked up a book of his sketchbooks because when Egon Schiele was 11, he was obsessed with drawing trains. He loved to draw. He's only good at two things in school, uh, drawing and athletics. So basically, that's, that should be my uh, autobiography, drawing and athletics. That's my story <laughs> of my life. Uh, thank you, Egon, for the inspiration. So Egon's dad takes a book of all his sketchbooks of his trains and burns them, (gasps) burns them at 11 years old, savage. So, you know, it's amazing. So what, but the thing is, and I'm going to let you get back to it, but when he died, he was in the care of his father's brother who put him under his wing and didn't really like 
that he was an artist and wanted to become one because he wanted to follow in the tradition of being a, what was he, a train? He was a, a train yard dude. Like, a, you know, what did what that call when you I drive? I don't it? know. When conductor, you drive a train, conductor. conductor. He was like in that field and didn't, and wanted Sheila to follow, Egon to follow in his footsteps. And Sheila, Sheila was like, no, that's not me. So he actually put him in an academy, which, and, and he had him study, sorry, pri- he had him take private lessons. And then eventually went to Academy and then went, found Gustav Clint later on. So that, that's an interesting thing. So it was a big turning point that his father died, I think, when, when, when Sheila was 15. And that was a good thing. I mean, obviously horrible that he died, but it allowed Sheila to become an artist. Because I don't think he would have been able to become an artist under the roof of his father. But it also framed the central themes that Sheila would would introduce in his his art that he would constantly struggle with and self-analyze. Uh, no, this intersection between okay. suffering and sex. Mm. And he saw that through his father because his dad would constantly visit. Just say his father Adolf. <laughs> no, I can't do that. I <laughs> yeah, refuse that, to say Adolf. Although, yeah. side note to your side note, there was a really interesting exchange between the Nazis and Sheila's work, which I think we should talk about later because mm-hmm. it's so interesting. But mm-hmm. anyway, so Sheila saw his father's body completely degradate just because of this transmitted disease and all of his time spent in brothels. And that was propulsive for him and his own art inquiry. And he also painted a ton of self-portraits and I'm sure you love that too because of the lineage of Rembrandt and uh, Van Gogh, but Sheila's self-portraits are distinctive because he's always nude. And what I think is so fascinating about this is that it seems even though the self-portrait genre is really expressive and through those painters, I think that his work is more akin to the sculpture of Rodin than to the self-portraits of Rembrandt or Van Gogh, because the way that that Rodin is able to truncate the body and break it down, and he decapitates his figures, and arms are twisted and agitated, Sheila does that through his painting and through his drawings. And there's this one self-portrait of him with his mouth open that is just so incredibly evocative. And he doesn't have arms and his legs are compositionally cut off, but they look like they have been biologically cut off too. And his body is just emaciated and his mouth is kind of open and there are lots of rings under his eyes. And so it looks almost like a a premonition of a death mask. And his self-portraits are searing, they're scorching, and they are incredibly violent, but also sexual. And there's an element of voyeurism, but also an element of exhibitionism. And I think the combination of the two is just remarkable. Yeah, he, he, was, a, uh, he was an artist who really liked to have muses. He was very self-exploratory in terms of his self-portraiture, uh, but for the most part, he always seemed to have a muse. Uh, he was a little bit obsessed in a bizarre, freaky way with his sister, uh, which was always freaky deaky. And that was another thing that Adolf, his father, Adolf, 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 <laughs> was uh, disgusted about. He really you know, felt that Sheila Egon was a troubled child, which I think in many ways he was. And then, of course, <clears throat> he really did uh, seek you know, women usually who were pretty young, 
to use as his subjects. Sometimes children. Sometimes children. And so it is, he's, he's walking the fine line of artists and, you know, wacko kind of pedophilia, pedophilia tendencies. Totally. And what is fascinating about that is that he was really integrating the psychology and the theories of Freud Mm -hmm. into his own self-explorations, but explorations of others and their sexuality. And Freud talks about the distinctive sexuality of children. And so I think when Sheila is painting similar themes, it wasn't because he was a pedophile. It was because he was trying to understand these concepts that Freud was laying out, but he was using his visual medium in order to do so. Yeah. And at one point of his career, he had a house, which was his flat with his muse, and they would invite all these people over. And a lot of the people that were coming over were were women, young women. And he would, you know, he had a lot of drawings of them and he got arrested. This is where he gets arrested. This is where he spends, you know, 20 some odd days in jail. And they arrested him on charges of sexuality and abduction, you know, kidnapping, whatever. Uh, later, they dropped the charges, but they did uh, imprison him for an additional three days because of the sexual nature of the drawings. And in fact, the judge actually burned one of the drawings at the trial oh. with a candle. All these people fucking burning his shit throughout his career. It's amazing. Which is so strange because so many people's art historically, like Rockwell, when we spoke about Norman Rockwell, so much much of the work was lost in a fire. And yet here you are, Sheila has his sketchbook drawings burned by Adolf, his father. Then all of a sudden the judge sentences him to jail and burns his drawing in court. And then the other Adolf ends up burning more of his stuff at the Degenerate Art Exhibition. Exactly. So... He is like, you know, he's victimized, but yet the avant-garde art world, you know, the the world that's exhibiting Kokoschka and Edvard Munch and Van Gogh, he's having shows with them. He's exhibiting with them. He's exhibiting with heavies, like real heavy hitter artists. And I think because of the fact that he was so scrutinized and because of his subject matter and because he was so unique, like you said, in his just exhibiting these women without anything in the background whatsoever. So it got really exploratory emotionally. We were able to investigate the psyche of the sitter. And because of that, people felt that. And that's why today his work is fetching ridiculous prices from, you know, 19 to $40 million and up, you know, there's a, there's a reason he is still, you know, I went to go see his show in New York with my daughter a couple of years ago and they didn't let her in. They didn't let her in to see the drawings because they said it was, I, I, I should have lied about her age, but um, I, think, I think she was, I don't remember, I think she was 12 or 11 and they didn't let her in, even with the parental, parental supervision, because the work is still considered crude and sexually too revealing. Isn't that crazy? That really upsets me because that framework is going to shape people's impression of the work before they even interact with it themselves. Plus, it makes it more desirable if people can't get to it. You know, I, I and I, I wound up, you know, showing I, I didn't go because I couldn't leave her there. Or did I? And I was, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I didn't go. I didn't leave her there. But, I, you know, I showed her uh, 
the work on my phone and, and you know, I was like, I'm not going to hide drawings. These are drawings. This is not pornography. And this is life. And it's erotically charged, but so is life. But here we are, you know, 2016, and still people are, you know, consumed with this conservative ideas of this is por- this is pornographic. These are drawings, ladies and gentlemen. So there has to be a huge distinction between drawing and pornography. You know, and 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 back then you can only imagine and see why he went to jail. Right. Although I do think that Vienna at this time was a little bit more sexually progressive mm. than perhaps America is at 2016 when you mentioned, but that makes me think of an experience that I had recently. I was speaking in Dubai and one of the other presenters, she was talking about, you know, I don't even remember what the subject was and that is kind of important too. But anytime she had a nude, she would include these bars, these censorship bars over the relevant parts. And I'm telling you, I've never thought about boobs more than during this presentation because she is denying our viewership in a holistic way. And so by censoring, we focus on that element even more. And so I think that the drives of people to cover genitalia or to eliminate certain viewership from museum exhibitions, it actually does the opposite. And we need to normalize sexuality and normalize bodies. And I just can't believe we haven't done that yet. Well, yeah, and if you look at Sheila's work, he's got a lot of like a lot of just open labia, vagina, you know, drawings from you could see him sitting there with a sketchbook and, you know, having his sitter stand oftentimes uh, and sit oftentimes, you know, with with the genitalia facing him. It's almost like it's like eye level, you know, vagina. That's kind of where he was going. The way it should be. Right. But. He was doing it, and I don't think really a lot of people did. And, you know, the crazy thing is that you look at Gustav Klimt's work and literally one of the greatest, beautiful, most beautiful, brilliant draftsmen and painters of all time. And I think, you know, he really found something special in uh, Sheila. He really did. And I feel like some of Klimt's work, even though early Sheila work is very copycat of his teacher, Klimt, you see all the decorative elements, you know, the squares and the triangles, the art deco-ness of it all. But then later on, you see some of Klimt being influenced by Sheila. So Sheila's only 28 when he dies. Could you imagine what he would have put out there into the world if he had lived longer? And that being said, it's a little bit like Muhammad Ali. And that's a very weird analogy, but I'm going to make it. Muhammad Ali, for a lot of his career, because he boycotted the Vietnam War, was not allowed to fight. Sheila, too, was drafted, World War I. He was escorting a lot of the Russian prisoners. He didn't draw women during this time, and he could barely draw that much during this time because he was working in the army. So what does he do? You know, he's, he's, he's at the pinnacle of his career, the height of his career. He's not able to draw. So he draws as much as he can draw. But there's a whole period there that's wasted. You know, he's not considered somebody, you know, like Ali as well. Who, like, dude, just let him fight. Like, this guy is special. He's important. He's, he's beyond, you know, belief. But, and same with Sheila. But his country didn't consider him that way. No, you got to join the ranks. You got to fight. And so he lost a lot of important creative time during that period and still, cre- and still was as prolific as he was 
when he died at 27. Just kidding. <laughs> he died at 27, guys. You almost got that one in there. Yeah, I almost got it in there. Yeah, and that actually happened to a lot of his contemporaries. I'm thinking of Franz Marc, who was a contemporary of Kandinsky's, and the two of them started this German expressionist offshoot called Der Blau Reiter, and he was forced or drafted into World War One, and then ended up dying, and so his career was was cut short. So this is endemic, I think, of this time in Europe. And speaking along those lines, I wanted to talk about this Nazi thing that happened. So after Sheila died, his work was still, you know, exhibited um, prominently, and there was this one. German Jewish art dealer, and she collected one of his works, which is called Portrait of Vali. And why people really love this one is because there's a companion piece, which is a self-portrait of Mm. Sheila. And so they're meant to be exhibited alongside each other with the two of them sort of tilting their heads in the vague direction of the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're really, really beautiful. The thick impasto is incredible, and there's just such a sensitivity to the psychology of both of these people. And this is a rare self-portrait of Sheila's because he's not nude. And his clothing really echoes the clothing of his mistress and model, Vali. So the Nazis, they raided this art dealer's space and they basically forced her to close it down. And the portrait, the Sheila portrait that she had was in her private collection but they appropriated that too, stole it from her, and then exhibited it themselves. And Hitler, he had this idea to just take whatever art he wanted and then create his own museum with all the art inside. Mm -hmm. And he actually really loved this portrait, which I think is Very weird. Very weird, yeah, sort of missing the point of Sheila, but that's fine. We don't have to credit the Nazis as being critical thinkers. So it's it's cool if you miss the boat. But anyway, the interesting provenance of this work is that it was eventually acquired by a mainstream museum. And then we get into this issue of ethics and who is the rightful owner of this painting. And it's really the family of this woman, but museums like to turn a blind eye to that because they don't want to get rid of their collections. And if we start redistributing Nazi looted art to correct owners, then half or really looted art to their owners, Nazi or not, then half the Louvre is going to be gone, half the British mm-hmm. Museum. Mm-hmm. So it's there are some slippages that are pretty tricky. And then if you think about the conservation of the painting, perhaps it is better off in a museum than it is in a private collection. So the resolution is that the museum settled with the family, paid the family keeps the painting, and there's a little sign explaining the provenance and that this painting is emotionally still within the collection of this one family. Yeah. Well, when we when we think of Egon Schiele, I think we have to think about the fact that so many artists today also have copied his, his kind of vibe. There's so many artists today that are copying. Like who? His, I'm not going to mention any names, but contemporaries of mine that are wannabes. You could see it. I mean, if you look at uh, people's work today, you could see that they are, let's say, influenced intensely and perhaps to the point where it's not influenced anymore. There's a difference between being influenced by artists and copying their style. So Sheila is very hard to copy, though, and here's why. Because his lines, like 
so few people are very true. His lines are so observed. You could feel the tibia. You could feel the bone, the musculature, like I said. You could really feel it. You could feel, on top of that, the emotional quality of the line. It's got this kind of kinetic energy. It's electric, and it's truthful. And when you draw blind contour, if you've ever done blind contour drawing, or if you ever draw them with your opposite hand and you draw from life, Oftentimes, you get those moments of truth in your work where you're like, oh my God, there's something about that that's so real. It's so true. I feel like Sheila really drew that way all the time. It was very difficult. You had a very masterful understanding of observational drawing. And because of that, a lot of people copy his style. And, and I'll even further say that when you see his drawings of plants, particularly sunflowers, they're so truthful and there's so much power in those lines, how many people have given personality to sunflowers and plants and foliage like Sheila? How many people have given personality to beds and linens like Sheila has? That's very difficult to do. You can all draw the plant, and you might even be like, that's a good, that's, that's a good drawing, it's a solid drawing, it's good construction, you know, it's good whatever, but he draws it with a purposeful like narrative to it where you can feel the actual plant or sunflower coming to life there's a life force spirit spirit is mundi inside of the actual vegetation that's fucking difficult man that is. is difficult and not just a spirit but an agitated one something that's been violently cut or wounded or injured or there's just to me there's always something a little bit rough and gnarly about his work and maybe it's just the the line but it feels frenetic Mm -hmm. and that was totally appropriate to the time and also completely appropriate to his tactics as an expressionistic artist and his exploration of sexuality is just so sincere and it's hard to look at, and it's also really sensual. And I, I just appreciate so much that he rarely painted a body in its full form, that he would play with this sense of truncation. And that was really unusual, but it was also very emotional. Yeah. So in closing, I would say that uh, Egon Sheila is an important artist. If you don't know about Sheila... Wake up from the slumbers of darkness because you need to see the light. And his lines shine and illuminate with the best masters ever. Peace.